All right, well, good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem, and so I just want to continue to extend uh, my welcome uh, in addition to all of the welcomes you've received so far. So if you're new, I would love the chance to meet you. Uh, this is a great place filled with great people. So exciting, uh, excited about what God is doing uh, in the world that we live in. So, um, hey, um, we're gonna, in this series called Witnesses, uh, kind of subtitled here, there, uh, and everywhere, and we'll continue kind of unpack that as the series goes. But before we dive in uh, this morning, just uh, wanna share, um, how many of you guys are, ask a question, how many of you guys have seen the movie um, Maverick? Yeah, a couple, right, okay. Um, so I, uh, growing up, I mean, obviously, it, it uh, probably reached a certain age before that movie was something that I could watch, and so I finally, at one point, watched it, and, uh, and, and I enjoyed it, and it was one of those things as I got older, I thought, you know, Top Gun is, is a movie that's fairly iconic, you know, in the world that we live in, and so it's a good movie to own, right? And so it's not, it's not a movie that I pull out uh, and watch maybe, maybe ever, I don't know, I mean, I think I probably bought it and then watched it once, and then it went away, like most DVDs, which is silly. Um, but um, maybe sometimes like what I'll do is I'll pull it out and then just watch the opening scene as loud as possible, you know, like in the house, because like that's just incredible, like the runway and the music and, you know, uh, the highway. So I'm, oh man, this is whew, uh, really, really good. So, um, but I, I was never really a huge Top Gun fan. And so when it came, when Maverick came out this year, uh, people kept saying, this is a great movie, you should go check this out. And, and so for me, I thought, ah, it's really not a big deal, um, and so I never did. And people kind of, I caught a lot of flack for that, honestly. Um, and so it came out to rent uh, this last week for like $2.99, and I was like, I can do that, you know? I'd, I'd like to see it for $2.99, and so I watched it, and let me just tell you, it was probably one of the best movies I've seen in 10 years. I mean, it was, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was so, it was so good, and, and it had like my, my full attention, and like the fact that, I mean, that hasn't happened in a long time, and so, but here's the deal. Um, we started the movie like around 7 o'clock, Eden goes down at 6.30, and it usually takes her uh, about 8.30 to fall asleep. And so for the first hour and a half of the movie, it was this, this, this glorious entertainment, and then we'd hear Eden through the monitor, and we'd be like, do you hear Eden? No, I don't hear her. I don't hear her. I don't hear her. You know, <laughs> don't do it. Don't hit it. Don't do it. Oh, we have to hit pause. Hit pause. Hit pause. Ah! You know? And it kept getting interrupted. So for like the first hour and a half, it was interrupted, and it was painful. So, so hard, you know, and, you know, it's first world problems, people. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so, but there's these interruptions and it's, it's painful. Last night I, I went to bed and, and, um, and woke up this morning at 2.30 a.m. like wide awake. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And so, and it wasn't, there's, didn't feel like there's any spiritual attack or anything. I was just like wide awake. And about half an hour later, Eden woke up, and I was like, okay, so this is what God is doing. He wants me to go serve my, my, my wife and serve my daughter. And so I went in fully awake at 3 a.m., and my daughter, and I come in, and she's like curled on her bed. She's like, I need some Kleenex. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let me, let me do that. Let me, let me get you some. And so, I mean, like she uses, I mean, she's probably killed a thousand trees with the number of Kleenexes she's used. So I had to go get like toilet paper and bring it in and give it to her. And then I said, are you cold? She said, yeah. And so I tuck her in and then I'm patting her butt and I just, and I, I whisper in her ear, I love you. And she goes, I love you too. You know, and it was like, it was like that interruption of my night didn't matter at all. You know, it was just like this, this 
godly, beautiful moment. Uh, and then I went back, tried to go back to sleep, couldn't fall asleep, fell asleep at 4.30, my alarm went off at five, and there was another interruption. You know, it was like, oh, interruptions. How many of you guys, like when your alarm goes off, you just like want to smash your alarm, you know? Like some of you are like that. Like I know some of you are like, you know, like you just bound out five minutes before it even goes off. And some of you are like, you know? Uh, it's like life is filled with interruptions. And some of those are, are easier than others and others are harder than others. And, um, and as I think about this, you know, this, this story from this last week as we're jumping back into, um, into our text today, what we're going to find is that it's a continuation of that story. And what we found, though, is that there's Peter and John who are on their way to do something, to go pray in the temple, and then they're interrupted in their normal rhythm by this man who has this dire need, not only for healing, but really ultimately for Jesus, right? And so this divine interruption that happens. And what happens in this moment is that there's a healing. It's this beautiful snapshot, really, of the gospel. It's this portrait of how God initiates with broken, helpless people, right? Like he initiates and he saves a group of people that cannot otherwise, by their own works or their own doing, save themselves. And so this is a beautiful picture and has all of the ingredients to be super awkward, and yet it's radically amazing. Okay? Um, and so there's these interruptions, but what we're going to find today is that there's a new group of people that kind of forces their way into the story, and you would hope that, you know, kind of the story just ends on like, you know, like cloud nine kind of thing, like high moment, and yet what's going to happen is this group's going to enter in, and it's a group of people who are concerned, and it's going to create conflict, okay? So if you've got a Bible, you can turn over to Acts. Um, if you don't have, um, or if you do have one of these, you can turn to page 34 and follow along uh, right in there. If you don't have the companion journal, you can actually raise your hand and one of the ushers will, will bring uh, that to you. So um, I hope that you... Um, are enjoying this series. Um, it's crazy to me. It's crazy cool to me, and, and I hope that you agree um, that, that you and I, like what's happening right here this morning is connected to a story that started 2,000 plus years ago in this text. Like this is, this is our deepest history right here, and it's crazy to think that we're a part of a movement that's so much bigger than we maybe ever really give it credit for, right? And so Acts is this, this beautiful picture of the church as it's merging into the world. So here we go. In chapter four is where we're going to be, um, verses one through uh, 22. Here's how it starts. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there for a moment. So um, that first verse, right, as they're still speaking to the people. Okay, so you remember, you've got this kind of divine interruption that happens with Peter and John and this, this lame man that we don't know his name, so that sounds kind of degrading, you know, in some sense, but these two groups of people, they share this beautiful moment, and as everybody is shifting their gaze in amazement and wonder to Peter and to John, what they do is that they shift the gaze of the people to Jesus, but in the midst of that entire discussion, all of this wonder and amazement and, and this incredible story that's happening, this other group enters onto the scene, and it says, Luke says, that they came upon them, okay, this is common for Luke, it's, it's a 
phrase that he uses to kind of interject this sudden, this sudden nature, this group of people entering in. And so it's kind of like a little bit, or at least in my mind, kind of like, like a chessboard, right? So you've got these pieces that are on the table, right, between Peter and John and this man, and entering into the story, who kind of force their way in suddenly is this new group of people, okay? And we'll, and we'll come back to, to, to them a little bit later. But here's the deal. So here's, here's these people. Who are these, these people? Well, it says that they are priests. Um, we are probably somewhat familiar with priests. Priests are not to be confused with Pharisees. Pharisees are the more rural people um, in the, the synagogues out kind of in the rural area. The priests are the people in the temple in Jerusalem who are overseeing the daily sacrifices and, and all of the things that go associating with the temple. They're highly concerned with the law and with piety, so this idea of kind of self-sacrifice, okay, like this is their posture, very much so, um, and they're, they're very ritualistic about it. But then you have these, these people, or this guy I mentioned, the captain of the guard, and you're like, Man, I, who in the world is that? Like, I've never heard of him. That's because he is like, the, he's like the temple police, He's in charge, like this is a real thing. They have like temple police and their job is to ensure safety that nothing crazy happens, like maybe something that's happening even in the story, you know? And so it gains his attention. And it's kind of like, you know, like you're out on the playground and the vice principal shows up because like the head person, main guy at the temple is the high priest. Number two is the captain of the guard. Okay, so it's like if you're on the like you're like out for recess and, and something happens and the vice principal shows up, you're like this this is escalating. Something is changing here in this moment. Okay, so he is a part of this group, and then you have this this other unique group that you've maybe heard of. They're called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees are unique because they are a group of people who tie their their kind of their sub heritage all the way back through this high high priestly line through this guy named Zadok, and then Zadok, and all the way back. Back to Aaron, who's like the initial priest, and by all back to Abraham and, and, and whatnot. And so it's just kind of this unique, you know, this unique story. And so for these people, they would say, we are the best of the best. And really what they do is they make up the high aristocracy. They're the most wealthy, most influential people in the Jewish uh, culture, right? Their name, Sadducees, even comes from the word righteous. And so it feels like there's even a bit of pretentiousness like in this, like we are the best of the best. But unlike the priests, the Sadducees are not, they're not as concerned, they are concerned, but not as concerned about the law or piety. They're concerned about something else, and that's their status. And that's their power. And so we're going to find that here in, in a moment, right? So here's the deal. It says that, that Luke records is that when these three, these three groups of people came upon them, it says that they were greatly, what? Annoyed. Have you met any annoying people recently? So annoyed here means this, this, this idea of like getting worked up over something. And I feel like this could be like a daily application for every single one of us. I mean, like if it hasn't happened yet today, it probably will, right? Like you will inevitably come across somebody today who is, who is worked up about something. So whether that's a, a classmate at, uh, at college, maybe it's a, a roommate or a neighbor, uh, or maybe, maybe it's someone online, like social media. Like you come across somebody who's worked up over something. Um, we, we used to live in Colorado a long time ago, and um, there was this gal who lived across the street 
and uh, and so it's a you know public street, and so we whenever we would have people over our house, I mean there'd be like 50 cars kind of parked around, and so people would park in front of their house, and so one day she came over, and she you know raps on the door and knock knock knock, and I answered, and she she and is all worked up, and she says, hey, could you? Um, when you have people over, ask them not to park in front of our house. And immediately, the sin inside of me wanted to say, cool, is that a public street? <laughs> you know, like, are they allowed? Oh, wait, no, oh, they are allowed to park there, you know? Um, what am I going to do? Ask my people to go down three more blocks? Like, that's not, like, that's rude. And so in this moment, I had, like, the sin rising inside of me. And so it worked me up, right? And so she's worked up, I'm getting worked up, and I just, like, pause. Okay, okay, that's fine. We do this, right? But the reality is, this is a daily thing, we- weekly thing. We-, we confront people, we-, we come into conflict with people who are worked up uh, over something, okay? And, and we'll come back to that at the very end, because that's kind of an important part of this text. But um, here's the deal. These Sadducees are worked up in this scenario over two major things. The first thing is this person of Jesus, right? It says that they're teaching and proclaiming Jesus, okay? So Jesus um, is the Messiah. The Sadducees thought that, that the Messianic period had already started a long time ago. So in their mind, Jesus was utterly irrelevant, like, he has no part in the story, okay? He's not who he says he is. But here's the deal. The bigger piece is that the Sadducees, for, for whatever their reasons were, did not believe in the resurrection. And so when they're teaching and proclaiming the resurrection, that's going to, like, raise some, some red flags, isn't it? Right? And so they don't believe in the resurrection. They felt like uh, their belief was that, um, that the soul died with the body, which is strange in some sense, in my opinion, in Jewish culture, knowing the hope that the Bible offers, and yet that was their view. Um, It's also, though, very similar to many views today, in today's world. Annihilationism, right, is this idea that once you die, everything ceases to exist. Like, there's no soul, there's no afterlife, there's no good or bad, there's, there's none of that. And that's a very common belief today that many people believe. Right? And so it puts so much pressure, really, on the life that we have to live right now, because it removes any sense of consequence or any sense of accountability or any need, ultimately, for Jesus. Right? And so this is, this is, a, huge, this is a huge deal. Um, and so here's the, here's the thing. When I think about the Sadducees, notice this. Notice that their beef with Peter and John is not that they performed a miracle. So the Sadducees are not diametrically opposed to good things happening in the world. That's not the case. Like, they're not concerned about that. They're concerned about something else. And so this is something that's fundamental. So whenever, and this is really strong application here, so write this down or something. Whenever you come across somebody in life who is worked up over something, here's what you need to know, is that oftentimes... The issue that, you're, that they're worked up about is not the real issue, right? There is something. They might be complaining about the cars parked in front of their, in front of their house, but in reality, what they're concerned about is something far deeper, and maybe it's loneliness or insecurity or fear, you know, or whatever it is. You know, I almost wonder if that gal, because we had so many people at our house all of the time, like if she, and there was like nobody ever there. I wonder if she felt lonely. 
Like, I don't, I don't want you guys parking in front of my house. I don't know what it was, but the real issue is probably so much deeper than what we're talking about, right? And so just remember that as you, as you think about people uh, in your life that you're, that you're coming across where this conflict is being created because they're being, uh, they're being worked up. And the Sadducees here, what's unique about the Sadducees is that they're not concerned about the healing. They're concerned about their own status and their own power. So probably what's likely motivating them is a sense of fear, right? Because here's what's happening, right? You have the most powerful, influential, and wealthy person in a Sadducee right here. And what's happening in the courtyard of the temple? This is their place. This is our house kind of a thing. And what's happening is this massive crowd begins to shift and move. And who is it centering around? More Sadducees? No, who? Two fishermen, Like, in what world, like, in what scenario is an entire aristocracy opposed and against two fishermen? Like, this is a bizarre story as it's unfolding, right? And so what we have in this moment, right, is we have this group of people. You've got, you've got priests, you've got the captain of the guard, and you've got the Sadducees, who are all very, they have a lot of similarities, but are very different, and all have different motives. And yet what they do is they begin to collude together because they have a common enemy. This happens against Christianity all of the time. You have people in the world who are radically opposed to each other, but together they're against Christians and against Jesus. It happens all of the time because they're willing to overlook those differences if it means coming against Jesus, right? It naturally happens all of the time. And so it's this interesting, interesting thing to see the power shifting. So as the power is shifting in this moment, the Sadducees are probably wrestling with this, this dynamic that's in their heart. And so what do they do? They decide to arrest the disciples, to arrest Peter and John. And so in their mind, this is kind of the way it goes, right? So you've got, you know, the people, right? And it's like as if they come in and they think that the best way to solve this problem is to remove the people from the story. Do you see that? That was a magic trick. It's really good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, like, so, like, they think that they can just, you know, remove the people from the story, and that's their way to solve the problem. Now, you might think that in a story like this, that by doing that, by removing them, they're controlling the board, right? That's kind of their way of controlling the chessboard. I'm going to remove this piece, and we're going to create our own scenario where we talk to them tomorrow, kind of after prison kind of a thing. But you would think that this is where the story kind of ends. Like this, you would think that if I removed the people from the story, uh, that it would stop, right? But here's, here's how it works. This is how verse 4 looks. I, lo- I love this. This is so great. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 people. Right? Like, okay, so like, this is like if you're playing on a basketball team. If you're playing on a basketball team and you are getting destroyed on the court and your way to win is to remove the entire other team from the court and yet somehow they keep scoring. Like, how does that work? Right? Like, you, we've removed the people. Why is this still happening? Here's the key thing. Because the Holy Spirit is still at work. 
right? And it's this crazy, beautiful story in which these people are removed from the setting, and yet it moves, like it continues to multiply. And we know that 3,000 people have already trusted Christ, and that maybe is just the men. So maybe it's three to 10,000 with women and children. Who knows? Here it says it's gone from 3,000 to 5,000. Is that an an additional 2,000, or is that another total 5,000? Is that eight to 15,000? We don't know. We don't know how big the number is, and it's radically growing. It's this, this movement that begins to go. And here's the deal, though. Don't think, don't get your mind wrapped around this too hard, because just because there's this massive movement growing, right, they are thousands amongst millions. Because being a Christian always means being in the minority, And whenever that's the case, there's conflict around Jesus, right? And so that's what's going to happen ultimately. It's going to continue to do this. And as I was wrestling on, as I was wrestling on this this text this week, this this idea came to my mind. It's it's this, right? Because the Sadducees thought that they could stop the problem by removing them from the scenario, right? Removing the pieces. And so here's the truth is that they thought that they could arrest the disciples, but the reality is you can't arrest the gospel because the Holy Spirit continues to work in the hearts and minds of people who heard it, and that's incredible. But here's the flip side, okay? There is a group of people who can arrest the gospel. Do you know who that is? It's you and me. How do we do that? By never talking about it. By never talking about the gospel, we arrest it and we keep it captive and it can't go forward, right? And so there's this reality that they can't arrest it, right? But we find, what is Peter going to do? Like, how is Peter going to respond, okay? So, so the, the Sadducees have removed the people. They've made their own game. We're going to take them out of this game and we're going to create our own game over here. Look at verse 5. It says, on the next day... Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Okay, guess who's there? With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, who, by the way, was there with Jesus and and, and interviewed Jesus, uh, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Guys, this is like the Jewish Supreme Court who are now all radically opposed to who? Two fishermen. Why? Because they healed someone. Like, what's happening here? Like, look at who it brings. It brings every single person, the most wealthy and influential people in the entire Jewish culture, and they're going to surround Peter and John. And it says that they put them in their midst. It says, when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, right? And they asked this question. They say, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, here's the deal. Like, I just want you to imagine yourself, if you're Peter or John, or maybe it's just you, if you picture yourself in that moment, like, what would you say? How would you respond? Because I would guess that for many people, myself included, it might be really easy to say something like this. Guys, whoa, this escalated really quickly. Um, I think that there's been a misunderstanding here. 
Um, I value you, I value my life, let's just go our separate ways. But here's what's interesting in that moment is the way that Peter and John respond. It's, you see, I don't know if uh, the Sadducees and, and everybody that's in this room realized what they're doing, but it's like they were taking the chess piece and handing it back to Peter and John and saying, it's your move. What are you gonna do? How are you going to respond? How are you going to do this? I, look, I love this. Look at, um, look at verse eight. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, just keep in mind, don't forget like, how important the Holy Spirit is to the story, right? Because this dependence on the Holy Spirit is something that we continue to need and to rely on, right? This is not Peter and John as superheroes. It's not like they have the gift of evangelism. It's not that they are just better equipped, uh, better educated than we are. It says none of that. It says that they were two fishermen filled with the Spirit, and it says that, that this idea of filling is this pattern over and over and over. It's happening. It's reminding us of this constant need and dependence that we have on the Holy Spirit. And so it's in this moment where it's like they hand the, the game and say, it's your move. Peter, filled with the Spirit, says this. He says kind of three things. He says, one, he says, rulers of the people and elders. So he acknowledges. He says, I understand who you are, and I acknowledge you. Okay, let's just start with that. Let's build a bridge here. I know who you are, okay? But then he shifts it back to the issue. He shifts it back to the miracle. Because Peter, I'm sure, knows that the real issue that's happening here is much deeper than what they're talking about. But Peter's going to bring it out of the depths, and he's going to bring it back to the top. He's going to go, hey, this is how it started. This is where this whole dispute and conflict started. So let's talk about that. Okay? Let's talk about that. Verse 9. He says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man has been healed? That's your question, right? Then he declares his intentions. Here's the deal. He says, here's what I want you to know. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you. Not one of you, not half of you. Here's what I want all of you to know. But then he goes, huh, he doesn't just stop there. He says, here's what I want you to know. And by the way, and all the people of Israel, I want them to know. And so that's like, it's like Peter saying, guys, here's the deal. What I'm about to tell you, I'm not going to be satisfied just telling you. I won't be satisfied until I've told all the people of Israel. And I think that in and of itself is a radical challenge to us in our world. He says, I want everybody to know this, all of Israel to know this. And here's what he says, right? He says that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so what does he do? He takes all of their gaze, and just like the crowd before, he puts their gaze back on Jesus. And this is the days before selfies. So he's like, hey, just to avoid any confusion, um, here's who we're talking about. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, who's from Nazareth, okay? So that's who we're talking about. You killed him, but here's the good news. God raised him from the dead. Which, by the way, is the very thing that started this conflict, because that's the things that said Jesus hate, 
or that they don't believe in. And so he takes it right back then to the depths. It's like Peter is acknowledging, here's what we're talking about, but here's what. I also know that that's not the real issue. (laughs) There's something deeper at play here. There's something deeper going on in this story, something deeper in your hearts. And so he goes on though, right? He doesn't just stop and finish. This is the man who's standing before you all. By the way, the words that he uses here, he talks about a man who was weak, this crippled man who was unable to walk for 40 years, and all of a sudden, now he's perfectly healthy, right? Not even a pimple. Like, I don't know if that's true. It doesn't tell us that, right? He's perfectly healthy. His feet are able to walk, and here he is. He says, he, this happens not because of us. It happens because of Jesus. But then he goes on. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. And what he's implying here is this idea that all throughout the Old Testament is that there are references to the Messiah, right? And all along, we are supposed to be building a church or building a body of people around that Messiah, right? And it's always pointed to that. But when it got to the moment of Jesus, when the Messiah is revealed, they see him and they reject him. They reject him. The builders, the very people who are supposed to be building the building are the very people who reject the stone. And the cornerstone um, is this idea of this, this kind of big, massive rock. And you can actually find a picture of it in your companion journal. It's at the corner of the bottom of the foundation of a building. It's this massive rock. And on it depends like the height, the length, the, 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 the purpose and, and, the, and the structure. All of that starts with your foundation stone, which is the cornerstone. It sets your angles, it sets all of your trajectories, uh, and all of its stability. It's an incredibly important stone. And so what Peter is saying is that you as builders were supposed to be building a body of people around this Messiah figure. But when it came to that Messiah figure, you took him and you removed him. And so now, in essence, there are two buildings. There's this building and there's this building. And your building is not the right one because it's rejected the Messiah. It's rejected the cornerstone. You are the very people who should know this and you are the very people who rejected it, right? Does that make sense? He's very clear here. It's it's very confrontational and yet it's also invitational. Uh, I was trying to think, how many of you guys have ever had a moment in your life when you uh, did something good and had some form of punishment for that? Has anybody ever had that happen? A few of you. It doesn't happen very often. I remember um, my junior year of college, I had transferred from the University of Nebraska to, uh, to Trinity, a small Christian school, to kind of pursue um, you know, kind of Bible training. And so uh, my junior year was the year that Katrina hit. Um, down in Florida. So that's, you know, relevant to us because there's, you know, more uh, hurricanes that have been present down there. And so, um, and so we got this bus, uh, rented a bus and, and said, anybody who wants to go, the first however many people want to go. And so we, we, uh, we drove down to Florida um, to serve people. And so we partnered with some type of relief organization that was there. And, and, uh, and so they sent us to uh, this guy's house uh, on a street, and let me just tell you, his house was a wreck. I mean, it was, I, I, I'm, I'm almost 100% positive that it was a wreck before Katrina. 
okay? Like, it was really bad. And then Katrina hit, uh, which, by the way, I think we had, like, driven by, and it's, like, in the neighborhood, there's, like, three boats in trees. I mean, like, that's how bad it was, you know? And so his, his property is just an utter wreck and ruin. And so here we go. We, we come up to the door, and we, we knock, and we notice, uh, in so doing, that there's, like, 1,800 signs that say, I don't want you here, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't like people, basically. Um, and from the inside, we hear this curmudgeonly, angry person who basically says, I want nothing to do with you. Go away. Do not do anything to my house. Do not do anything on my property. Um, I have dogs. They will bite you. You know, all this, 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 this stuff. And so we, we came away from that door and we had this decision to make. And here we are, just a bunch of college students. And, and we thought, man, like what's going to happen is that we pass up on this, but this dude really, really needs help. And so we started working and we totally disregarded what he had asked us to do. I'm not saying that's a wise thing, so if you're younger than me, okay, talk to your parents. Um, I'm just saying that in that moment, that's what we felt God was asking us to do. And so we worked our tails off and totally transformed the whole front yard and the entire backyard. And let me tell you, the transformation that happened that day was the smallest miracle uh, in the lawn because the biggest one was after he came out, after yelling and yelling and yelling multiple times, he came out with tears in his eyes. And just, just, just in a moment of full vulnerability, just crying, calls his son. His son comes and gets him. They run and get a bunch of food. They bring it back and together on the front lawn, we celebrated the transformation. And it was a redemptive moment. That's not always the way that stories end. And here with these people, right, they had to choose whether or not they would do what was right in the eyes of the Lord or they had to choose what was right in the eyes of the people who were judging them. And we'll see that in one second. But I want you to just stop and think about how easy it is for us in these moments to miss out on moments. Because it's one thing to drive to Florida and help with Katrina or help with any hurricane relief. There's so much intentionality there. But in everyday life, when things happen, it's so easy for us to see that and to shy away from those moments whether it's fear of conflict or whatever it is, right? We, it's easy for us to do that. And the reality is, is that we need to be very cautious all of the time about whether or not it's the right moment to share the gospel, but it's always a good moment to serve, right? It's always a good moment to serve. Uh, and I think that the question that we have to ask ourselves in, in any of these given moments is this powerful question, do I think that the gospel is actually worth it? You see, in Romans, Paul says that the, that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And I have to think, in this moment, do I really believe in the gospel and its transforming power through the work of the Spirit more than anything else? And is that driving me, or is fear driving me? You know, one of those things I heard this week from somebody, a good friend of mine here at church, and he said he heard this this week on the radio, and it said this, it said that... Um, the present tense right here, right now, is the only place where eternity meets up with reality. 
right? So it's these things that happen in the moment, right here, right now, and all of a sudden, it's eternity is at play in this moment, and I have to choose, is this the right moment, or is the gospel ultimately worth it? So if I come back to um, our board here for a second, I'm gonna throw these two words up um, in these boxes. The first word is, is the idea of grace, right? And the second is the idea of truth, okay? Now, when you think about these two words, right, naturally, uh, every single person in this room naturally is disposed or gravitates towards one of these elements when you meet somebody new. So I want you just to stop and pause and think for a moment. Do you, is it your natural disposition to be more graceful towards people or to be more truthful towards people? Just stop and think. And, and here's, here's the reality. Probably never are we, are we 100% of, of either, but, but if you were 100% grace, graceful, and if you totally disregarded truth in a given moment, um, this is, this is kind of what you become. Um, and, I, and I apologize, I don't really know how to do this, but that's a chameleon, which I think it actually looks a lot more like a balloon animal, you know? Um, but a chameleon Christian is someone who blends in. So if I'm all grace, I blend right in. All grace and no truth. But if I'm all truth and no grace, here's what I become. What's this? Cactus, right? A person who's all truth and no grace is someone who's a cactus Christian. You see, and here's the reality, is that people who are in this category um, have a hard time sometimes with sharing the truth because for the sake of the relationship, they want to maintain the relationship and not destroy it. These people forget that there's a relationship to be built. And so here's what's super important. As you look at John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son uh, only, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when we look at that, the, uh, that, that type of a thing, what we oftentimes do is we focus on these words, grace and truth, and yet what we miss is the very significant word and, because and is the nexus for these two words. And what it shows us is that it's never one or the other, it's always both. Every single time. It's always both. Now, it's not just the nexus, it's also a fulcrum, which means, right, that there are moments in life where you need more truth in a conversation than you do grace, because that's what the conversation needs, but it's always both. And the same is also true with this one. There are moments when it needs grace more than it needs truth. And we as people need discernment and wisdom, but really ultimately what we need is to be filled with the Spirit to discern right, what given people need in a certain moment. But what's so important about this is that it's always both. And recognizing and reminding ourselves of how we interject ourselves into the world matters right? What we need is courage and conviction, right? Because for people who are filled with grace, they need courage to say more, right? Uh, and people who have truth, they have this conviction that needs to be shared. But it's always this element of both, of courage and conviction, grace 
and truth, right? And so this is how the story like winds down. This is how it ends, right? There's this perception on behalf of, of the people. In verse 13, it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, right? They see boldness in these two people, which really just means this, is that they are without concealment. They're saying, like, this is the way that it is, and they're free to speak so. It's not harsh. It's not mean. It's just that there's not a burden. And so many times in life, I feel like when we share good news, it feels like a burden, and for them, it's this, this boldness, it's free. It's this, this freedom I have to be able to share with confidence, right, about the gospel. And it says, though, that they perceived that they were uneducated and common men, right? So they're not, they're unversed in Jewish schools, they're fishermen, and it says that they are astonished over this. And I love this. This is my favorite line in this passage right here. I, I love this verse verse, and it says this, right? Um, after it talks about them being astonished, it says, it says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So here's the deal. You take the entire aristocracy of the Sadducees and the priests and the captain of the guard and the entire royal people, and what they say is there's two fishermen, and the best thing that we can come up with is this. They were with Jesus. So in John 3, when Jesus said that I go away to spend time in the wilderness with people to form and shape people to my image, we begin to realize that the time that Jesus spent with his disciples on a daily, weekly, and monthly, and yearly basis is now bearing effects because when people see the disciples at work, what they see is Jesus. They see Jesus behind the veil. And what I think is just so great is that for us is that no matter who we are, right, you don't need a seminary degree, you don't need uh, the gift of evangelism, what you need and what I need is to be with Jesus. Because when we are with Jesus and we start treating people in the way that Jesus treated people, all of a sudden people are going to perceive differently that we are people who have been with Jesus. And I love this. Here's my second favorite line in this, in verse 14, right? They have all of this opposition. I'm sure that everybody in this circle wants to say something, and it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition, which, by the way, that means that the guy who was healed was probably in prison with them. Why? For being healed? And it's like you've forgotten about them the entire time. Here's Peter and John. They're questioned, questioned, questioned. Hey, guys, look at me. I'm standing right here. Just me. I'm right here. I didn't walk for 40 years. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And we go, uh, the, the, the thing is, this is the whole entire priestly family, and they got nothing. They got nothing and here's the reason why. This is so important for us to see this. It's so important for us to consider that sharing the gospel is connected to our doing good works. Because when we share the gospel with people, they have nothing to say against us in opposition when the good works are present. Because people can't fight against what's good. They know that that's good. They know that that's what's right. 
And so that's why those two things going together is so important. And I love this. They, they, they think, okay, we need to figure out what to do with these guys. So they send them away. And here's what it says. They have this little side conversation together in this whole priestly group of people. And it says, what shall we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. Remember, Peter had said, I want to tell everybody what's their thought, what's their excuse here. They say, it's not about the miracle. We just don't want you to teach to anybody about Jesus. And here's the boldness that continues to come out of Peter and John. This is incredible. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that to the president and its entire council? He says, stop talking. No. You can judge if you think I'm right or if I'm wrong. But for me, I cannot help but to speak about what I've seen and what I have heard. Guys, here's the conclusion, is that when we come back to the very beginning of the story and we find these people who are greatly annoyed, right? You find these people who come out of the crowd, right? They insert themselves. There's this divine, beautiful moment, and here inserts this group of people out of their own motive to bring conflict, and it says that they're greatly annoyed. And we have these people in our life over and over and over that are worked up about something. It's so easy to dismiss those people, but can I tell you something different? Let's reframe the conversation, because the word for working up can also mean to work hard for. And so what I think in this moment, the way that I'm hearing the Spirit even talk to me in this moment, is that there is a group of people out there who are worked up over something, but they're worked up because, here's what happens, they've worked hard throughout their life to build a worldview. They've worked hard to figure out the mess and the brokenness and all of the, the, the disgusting stuff in our life, and they're just doing the best that they can. And at the end of the day, when Jesus shows up, it challenges all of that. And so when Jesus shows up and it shows them that their worldview is wrong, guess what? They are grieving deep down because everything that they've worked for no longer works. And so there's a group of people who are just grieving. And even though we see annoying people, because let's just be frank, people who are annoyed are annoying. And yet when we see them as people who are grieving, we begin to see a little differently that the issue is not the real issue. It's about something much deeper that's going on in their heart. And if you remember the story that led the Peter and John to prison, it should remind you of another story, and it's the story of Jesus. Take a look at this picture. We can say with 98% certainty that these are the stairs that Jesus would have walked into Caiaphas' house when he was questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest. 
And in that space, he would have been put in prison, just like Peter and John. And in the top of that ceiling would have been a hole. And at the top of that hole would have been Caiaphas. And down below would have been Jesus, right? Because the high priest is concerned. He can't get close to anybody who is unclean. Because if you touch that person, then you now are unclean. So for sake of that, he would talk to people through a hole in the floor. And what this represents is not just holiness. It represents a symbol for the people, the separation between the people that believe in Jesus and the people who don't. And this is the room that ultimately would lead Jesus to the cross where he would die for the sins of all of the people. And so for you and I, we take a look into our own heart and say, gosh, like Jesus died for my sins. And when you start to see greatly annoyed people, remember that they're grieving deep down below and that what they need ultimately can only be found in Jesus. And we have the privilege to show up and intersect with grace and truth. So here's my challenge to you this morning as we think about the pieces on the board and say, as you meet people this week and as opportunities present themselves to say, it's your move. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish this morning, as we sing a song in Cornerstone, I pray that we would be uh, reminded that we are coming to the right place, to the right group of people where Jesus the Messiah is the cornerstone of our faith. And that it's in him we find forgiveness of sins and is a beautiful, beautiful place to be. But Lord, I pray that in the midst of the comfort and the coziness of, of this community that we would not forget the boldness and the courage and the conviction it takes to live in the world that we're in. And that we would be reminded that there are opportunities every day in front of us. And so Lord, as we see people, I pray that we would find people who are annoyed, greatly worked up over things and that we would intersect with grace and truth. And so Lord, this morning, I pray that as we leave this place again, that we would be reminded, that we would be reminded of, of the good news that we carry and may more than anything else that we pray this week, that as we go and as we interact with people or we live, work, and they play, would people see us and perceive in themselves that we are a people who have been with Jesus. Amen.